0: Our reading this morning comes from Ephesians 4, 4 through 6. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, church. Good morning. Uh, there we go. It's good to be with you. Uh, it's, a, it's a privilege to bring God's word to you uh, this morning. Uh, I do want to pray one more time briefly. Before I do, uh, this is just a selfish word of encouragement for you, for me. Uh, if you feel any inclination to respond to anything I'm saying with an amen or some other sound of affirmation or Uh, You know, just agreement. It would be greatly appreciated. It just helps me know that you're with me. All right. Exactly. Very good. Well done. Yes. So, preacher, like preachers need that. We need. We need to. Because if you're just if you're quiet, we're like I don't. I don't know how this is going. I'm not too sure. So, let's let's pray. Thank you, sister, for reading God's word. Uh, Let's just pray one more time to settle our hearts and and dive into the text. Uh, Heavenly Father, you are a good God who gives good gifts to your people. You give us your word. I pray that you would use the preaching of your word to glorify the Son so that your people would be encouraged. We ask for the sake of Christ and for the good glory and magnification of Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, in 1923, the great American architect Frank Lloyd Wright was given the challenge of building the Imperial Hotel in Tokyo in one of the most earthquake prone cities in the world. And he investigated before he drew up plans and they started building. And it showed that a solid foundation could be floated, on a 60-foot layer of soft mud underlying the hotel and this would provide a shock-absorbing but but solid support for this immense building. And shortly after the hotel was was completed, it withstood the worst earthquake in 52 years and other buildings around it crumbled to the ground. It's obvious that uh, the strong foundation allowed the building to remain standing, but it's also the wisdom and careful insight of the architect that gave the hotel its durability amidst disaster. So he, he had the, the, the architect, Frank Lloyd Wright, had knowledge that other architects did not, and his building stood and theirs crumbled. So Paul... Uh, if you've, I know you've been in the book of Ephesians, and you know that Paul has been encouraging the church in Ephesus to be eager to maintain what? Unity. There we go. In the bond of peace. You see that in verse 2. And he gives some practical instructions for how God's people should do this. He says we must be humble. We must be gentle. We must be patient. We must bear with one another in love. And we will all agree that these are easier preached and talked about than they are practiced. And, and so we're left with the question, how can the church remain put together doing all those things, right? When the earthquakes of trouble come into our lives, when disagreements come, when sickness comes, when national unrest or even personal sin comes, how can the church remain put together, practicing those things that make for unity. the answer that Paul gives is the church's foundation, what the church, God's people, is built upon. And God in his wisdom did not and does not build his church on man's ideas. It's built on the wisdom and truths of his word. It's a sure foundation. And unity is Hear me now, unity in the church can crumble, not because the foundation is weak, but because Christians in God's church can forget what we've been built upon. So perhaps for the Ephesians, Paul feels the need to remind them of this because they're in a very diverse Gentile church in the city that is fascinated with magic and the occult and they face regular temptation to grow distant from one another and apathetic towards Christ and as the one who reigns over all the world and in their lives. Maybe that's what he's thinking of as he writes to the Ephesians about their foundation. Perhaps for us, we are tempted to grow more warm Towards our differences in the church, whether they're socioeconomic or political or ethnic. And we're more prone to grow colder towards the truths that unify us as the people of God. Our unity is threatened when we believe that God's church is built on other things. Something else other than what he's laid out. For us in his word. And so Paul provides seven theological truths about the church's foundation to remind the Ephesians and us of what makes God's church immovable, rock solid. And here they are. Uh, We are one body. We have, you can see them right there in the text, we have one spirit. We have one hope. We have one Lord. We have one faith, one baptism, and we have one God and Father of all. And he does this in two sets of three. Set number one is one body, one spirit, one hope. And set number two is one Lord, one faith, and one baptism. And you also might notice that each part of this foundation is connected to a person of the Trinity. And so that's how we're going to break down uh, the text today and how we're going to uh, walk through it. So point number one will be one body, one spirit, and one hope. And we'll look at each one of those. And point number two will be one Lord, one faith, one baptism. And we'll look at each one of those and consider the work of the Spirit first and then the work of Christ. And then uh, God, the Father of all. And then I'll try to offer some uh, helpful application points in closing. So let's look at verse 4. Verse 4. There is one body. He mentions the body first because it's what he's been talking about, right? He's used this term before in his letter Ephesians 2 14 through 16. For he himself is our peace who made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. He goes on and talks about God, reconciling us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. So he's been using this this term body in his letter to the Ephesians. And it's, it's, it's his primary concern that the church at Ephesus understand that they are one body. Many members, many different gifts. Of one body. And sometimes the church is called the family of God. Sometimes it's called the temple. Sometimes it's called a nation of priests or the bride. Here it's called a body. And it's dependent on its many parts. You know the song. Toe bone connected to the foot bone and foot bone and the heel bone. And and we could go on and on and on. And Paul sees the church in the very same way. He uses something to describe the church that, as a whole, is made up of different but very codependent parts. Now, I don't know much about what's going on in my body all the time. Maybe I should. But I do know that if you hit me, okay, like, let's say, in my knee, that it will not only affect my knee, but my foot won't work right, okay? I know that if you take out, like, uh, like, like if you take out a kidney, right, the rest of my body will be affected. I do know that. The body is dependent on its many parts. Another thing about the body is that it's something visible, right? You can see it. So Paul could just say, we are one in spirit, right? And we would all kind of get that. He could use another metaphor that is less visible, but he uses a body. One of the reasons he uses it, not only is it codependent, but you can see it. So Christ was not ashamed to lay his body bare in public for the sins of his people. And one of the things that strengthens unity, church, is this, the ch- like this. The church gathered, that the body visible, that you can see Jesus Christ bringing his people together to be dependent on one another and help one another and serve one another visibly so the world can see it. And so Paul thinks, yeah, the body, dependent and visible. That's exactly what the church is like the church is like a body it's not only like a body it's actually a body so here's what i mean the church is the present corporate earthly manifestation of the saving work of christ the church is not just like a body it is a body And the reason i say this is because paul knew this firsthand it's how he met the lord jesus in acts Chapter 9, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. And so as far as Jesus is concerned, if you persecute the people of Christ, the people he bought with his own blood, his actual body, you persecute him. It's as if we are a living, actual entity, a body. So Jesus says, they're one in me. Consider John 17. Jesus says, he consecrates himself. I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in the truth. And then he says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word that they may all be one. So Jesus set himself apart for death so that the church might be unified as one body. And Jesus says that the unity that will come about because of his death, his separation from the Father, will be a gospel proclamation to the world. Don't don't you see why the unity of the church is so especially important, Trinity? Our unity, this, testifies to the very work of Christ in the gospel, You are forgiving each other and bearing with one another and listening to each other and helping each other bears witness of the gospel to the world. So Christians, so if that is true, Christians divided are Christians who are lying about the gospel. The so Christians caught in dissension over politics or culture or money or non-essential doctrines that won't get us to heaven or keep us from it, about the end times, over church splits, over things that are matters of second and third importance, or, or what kind of music is best, or whatever it is that causes you to be divided in the church, in your homes, in your relationships with other Christians, If you're choosing to do that, and it is a choice, if you're choosing to do that, you are telling the world that Jesus did not lovingly come into the world to save sinners through his death on the cross, in their place and rise again. Defeating all the, so when Jesus dies, what he's doing is, he's defeating all the things that make for disunity. And so when we are refusing to forgive someone, what we're really saying is, yeah, but he didn't die though, for sins. If he did, like, I would forgive you. If he did die for sins, we wouldn't be divided over this issue that's not really that important at all. If he did really die for sins, the person who disagrees with me on politics, they could come over to my house and we could eat together and fellowship together. If he really died for sins, Jesus made a way For all different kinds of people to be completely unified in him, part of one body, many different parts, interdependent, organic, cohesive, body, visible, and public, reconciled to one another. He does not mention race or denomination or geography or ethnicity. There is no Gentile, Jewish, male, female. These things are not to be ignored now, but as far as it concerns the body of Christ, there's one body. This is what Paul means when he tells the Colossians, here there is no Greek and Jews, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. I mean, consider how the church has grown. Consider how how Trinity got here, how risen Christ got here, and all other gospel-preaching churches in the world. starts with Adam and Eve to Abraham, who's a worshiper of pagan gods, Jacob, Ruth, David, all throughout history until now. He's been bringing all different kinds of people together under one name. Not only that, but think of who exactly Jesus called when he called his first disciples in Mark chapter 3. It's almost as if he's offering a template for us of what the world, the church and the world would look like. Consider this. Mark 3, he appoints Simon and Peter and James and John and Andrew and Matthew and Levi, okay, and Philip and Bartholomew and Thomas. And, and, and consider the differences here. James, Peter, uh, John, and Andrew are all fishermen, Matthew, or Levi, was a tax collector. Simon the Zealot was part of a movement that advocated throwing off Roman rule over Palestine by any means necessary. And the Twelve all came from different social backgrounds, but they also represented like diametrically opposed philosophical and political viewpoints. Matthew the tax collector was content enough with Roman rule to represent the government in an official capacity, where others might not be. Simon the Zealot was a member of a group that sought to expel Rome and regain Jewish independence. Presumably Simon left this movement when he joined the 12, but the key factor is that Jesus brought together into one body two men and others who could have not disagreed more publicly about politics and religion, And, and at least when Jesus calls them, he's what brings them together. This doesn't mean that we are not to celebrate diversity that exists among God's people or ignore the ways that sin and Satan have used uh, people's differences even to do harm in the world. We should be pursuers of justice and righteousness and mercy and good. So there's beauty amidst diversity that gives the church a, a, a sweet picture of what heaven will be like. But that diversity and difference ought never be used to divide us. So that we would lie about the gospel. The aroma of Christ's church in 2 Corinthians is identifiable no matter who you are or where you are. You don't need to speak the same, look the same, talk the same, dress the same to smell like Christ. We all have the aroma of Christ if we are indeed his. Amen? The, The church has been put together by all different pieces of clay. Codependent, visible body. that A body that is alive. And how are we alive? We are alive, Paul says, by one spirit. We're alive by the Holy Spirit. Verse 4, there is one body and one spirit. Not a spirit in a general sense of, of camaraderie. So it's been, I don't know how many years now. I'm just keep replaying the tape in my head. I did go to the parade when the Eagles won the Super Bowl. Uh, and we're just going to hold on to that and, and just ride that as long as we can. We don't know if there's going to be another one. But at the, at the parade, there was a spirit of, of togetherness and camaraderie. It ended when the parade was over, but it was there. But, but that is not what Paul is talking about. Paul is talking about a person. He's talking about the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Godhead, and he's drawing the church's attention to the fact that all the members of God's body have been converted by the same Holy Spirit. So here's what Paul is doing. So I want you to watch this, and I'm going to need your participation, so I'm not going to ask you to talk. I will ask you to raise your hands, okay? This is what, this is what Paul is doing. Raise your hand if you are a Christian. All right, it's good that most people in here raise their hands. Okay, it, raise your hand if you grew up in a Christian home. Great. Okay, raise your hand if you came to know the Lord in college. Okay, I'll put my hand up there. Raise your hand if you came to know the Lord as a younger child. Okay, raise your hand if you had a friend who shared the gospel with you. If it was your parents. And as you raise your hand, just look around, okay? Uh, raise your hand if someone at your job shared Christ with you and, and you came to faith through, through the ministry of someone at your job. Okay, One person, excellent, praise the Lord. If, it, it, raise your hand if you thought you were a Christian at some point and then you heard someone say something about the gospel and you went, oh, oh. Okay, right. Raise your hand if someone gave you a Bible, you opened it and you came to faith by reading the scriptures. Okay, yeah. Okay, I saw some little ones too. Okay, now, we all have come to Christ in different ways. Okay, now raise your hand if you at some point realized you were a sinner in violation of God's law. Yeah. Raise your hand if at some point you placed your faith in Christ. Okay. Raise your hand if the Bible is a book that you read and it's like words of life to you. Raise your hand if you can humbly say you've seen some kind of love... Joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self control in your life and in the lives of others since you've been a Christian. Everybody's hand that's a believer should be up there. So here's what Paul is getting at. Regardless of the circumstances of your testimony, regardless of your upbringing, regardless of your background, regardless of your family and how you came to faith, the Holy Spirit has done the exact same thing in the heart and mind of everyone who is a part of the body of Christ. Every single Christian, actual Christian on the planet, every Christian that's gone on to glory has had the same testimony. I once was blind and now I see. And that, so all the reasons you raise your hand, that is the work of the Holy Spirit. To quote one of RCF's own, what did Jesus do? made these heathens new, want to know my testimony, read Ephesians 2. We all in Christ have the same testimony. And Paul says in Ephesians 2 that he's made us alive together. And that comes about by the work of the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit who gives new life and causes Christians to be born again. This is what Jesus means in John 6 when he says, It is the Spirit who gives life. To the flesh is of no help at all. So you're raising your hands for stuff that you didn't do. Like, at all. This is the same Holy Spirit who sanctifies us and grants us greater obedience to Christ. This is why Paul tells the Corinthians that they were washed, sanctified, and justified in the name of the Lord Jesus by the Spirit of God. So if you see Christians in this church growing in their obedience and love for Christ, like, rejoice. Pastors, rejoice. Why? Because that means the Holy Spirit is at work. The Holy Spirit is alive and active. We Now, we, you're just moving and doing your thing, and sometimes you don't even realize it. But if that's the case, if you go, man, I noticed such and such, you just... Like, two years ago, she didn't care a lick about the Bible, and she's just been eating it up. Like, that's not because you, like, because your fellowship groups are dope, even though they probably are. That's not because y'all have family feasts, even though I would love to come to one. Like, I heard somebody say the other day, you were there, we're just not that good of salesmen, right? That's the Holy Spirit at work in the church. That's the Holy Spirit. It's the Spirit who helps us when we ask, open my eyes that I might behold wonderful things from your law. And then you love your Bible reading time. That's the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit who listens when we ask, Lord, I can't see you the way I ought to. I don't desire you the way I I, I would want to. It's the Holy Spirit who makes sense of our groanings for us. And 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 interprets what we can't say and articulate to the Father on our behalf. That's the Holy Spirit. That's the Holy Spirit that makes us one that Paul is talking about. And Think about how amazing it is that if we are Christians, the doctrine of the indwelling Holy Spirit is at work in you. If you are convicted of your sin, that is the Holy Spirit. If you are drawn to worship God, that is the Holy Spirit. In singing or in prayer, where you pour over his word in thanksgiving, that's all the work of the Spirit. And Paul is saying, you are one body and the Holy Spirit. The third person of the Trinity is a reality that unifies you. The Spirit is also the one who assures us of our hope. Our hope. Are you with me? All right. It's normal to hope. Uh, to believe that we will be better than we have been and that the future will be better than the past. Uh, we are wired for hope. But the trouble with hoping in this world is that our hopes are often manipulated. They're manipulated. So in her book, Counsel from the Cross, Elise Fitzpatrick points this out. She says, no matter where we turn in the world, to radio talk shows and daytime television, the internet, and particularly our email inbox, Snake oil salesmen are touting the latest cure for whatever problem or impediment we might face. No matter if our problem is acne, anger, ever-increasing debt, impending divorce, shyness, depression, unruly kids, there's someone right around the corner telling us how he will make our life better. There's always some offer of hope, isn't there? The problem is that that offer is always changing. And because it's always changing, it cannot unify anyone. We have to be unified around a hope that is fixed, that doesn't change. What is the hope that we have? Paul reminds us, he reminded the Ephesians earlier in chapter 1, that we were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of His glory. And so this is our hope. This is the future hope of glory that... That, that we will be with God in heaven and with Jesus forever when he returns. That is the hope that we have. And that hope is fixed. And the Holy Spirit guarantees it for us. It doesn't change, right? It doesn't, so there, there's, no, there's no one in the scripture that says, ah, you know, it, he might be back. We might get to glory. It, it, it might get better later. Like, all of these things are guaranteed. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Listen to this. Verse 16 to 18, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven, this is what the hope that we have now, with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first, then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. And then Paul says, therefore, encourage one another with these words. So the hope of heaven that Paul talks about in Ephesians 4 and the return of Christ that unifies us, we're to use to encourage each other. So you should be, as a pattern, using the, the coming glory of Christ to encourage each other. That, that's what unifies you. It's meant to be shared it's meant to be used to lift someone up when they're having a, a, a day where they can't see the forest or the trees, right? It's, it's, it's meant to be used to lift someone up when they're depressed and they, they don't think their life's going to get any better. We're to use the hope that we have as a weapon against sin and doubt and discouragement. Our hope is sure and certain. It's not unknown. Our hope is Christ, irregardless of what you believe about the circumstances surrounding His return. It is certain Christ shall come with shouts of acclamation and take me home and joy will fill my heart. And then I'll bow in humble adoration and there proclaim what? My God, how great Thou art. The hope of Christ is our hope. Christians, the body of Christ are filled with people who are looking to the future and in the future they see one man, Christ Jesus. And we will be with Him the hope that Paul is talking about here is the hope that all Christians can agree on. The return of Christ, the resurrection, and the last ju- excuse me, judgment. Joy in fellowship with Christ forever. That is our future hope, and it's that hope that unifies us. Listen to James Boyce before we move on to our next larger point. He says, if we look forward to those things if we anticipate the day when we will stand shoulder to shoulder with people from other denominations, nations, races, and experiences, and if in that day all the things that divide us now will fade away, then that should certainly influence the way in which we think about those divisions today. If we know we'll be together then, we ought to make every effort to make it look like heaven here. Amen? Paul moves on and says that we have one Lord, one faith and one baptism. One Lord. So just as all the unities in verse four are positioned around the Holy Spirit, the unities of verse five, one faith and one baptism are situated around the Lord Jesus Christ. There is one Lord. I remember talking with someone a while ago about, and he was asking me, what do you believe about Jesus? And and all that I was sharing with him about what I believed about Jesus, I shared that Jesus would come back to judge the world and pour out wrath on all who would reject him. And their response was, yeah, well, that's, that's the Jesus that you believe in. Like, that's not the Jesus that I believe in. He's not like that. He's not going to do that. But it's not like on the table for conversation. that There's only one Lord Jesus Christ, there are not many Christs subject to your preference and personal interpretation. And even as Christians who would go, yeah, yeah, amen, right? We can live differently. We can live as if there is a different Jesus. We can live as if there's a Jesus who fits my preferences, a Jesus who fits my schedule, a Jesus who fits the way that I want to see the world. And, And the interesting thing is the further away... so. Paul is talking about this as a unifier, right? So the further away you move away from any one of these, like you you veer away from the truth of Scripture and you start to isolate yourself. So so once you start to invent a Jesus that doesn't exist in the Scriptures and there's no one around to check you and go, what did you just say? You're not going to come to church on Sunday. Why? Why? But is that, does Jesus affirm that? No. You, you, you've been following a different Christ. The further away from, that you get from the true Christ, the true Lord, the more unity is threatened. There's one cornerstone, Acts 4 tells us. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Paul wanted to make this so abundantly clear and stress the importance of it so much that he said to the Galatians, even if an angel comes, like if a light-bearing angel comes and stands right here and just outshines me and says something different about Christ, Paul says, let that angel be accursed. I mean, that's significant. We've read that. you probably read that dozens of times, but it's quite significant. If a heavenly being, when you would go, he probably has something true to say. And then he says something different about the Lord you profess. He goes, X him out. There's, there's There's no Jesus crucified for sin, resurrected and coming again, plus anything. There's no Jesus died for your sins, plus he'll make you rich. There's no Jesus died for your sins. Plus, uh, you know, he he really wants your good works to really outweigh your bad and maybe then you'll make it in. There's no no Jesus plus anything unless it's in the scriptures. 1 Timothy 2, for there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. And the good news for us as the church is that he bestows his riches on all who call on him. The riches of his kindness, the riches of his mercy, the riches of his long suffering, the riches of the gentleness of Jesus, and the, and, 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 and the careful attention. The, the Bible says the, the eyes of, of the Lord go to and fro over all the earth, looking out for those he cares those as, the, those who love him. He's watching after you. We get all the riches of Christ. He's not talking about money, he's talking about all the benefits of having a Savior. Who loves you and knows you and cares for you and listens to you and abides with you. For everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. Not only do we have one Lord, we have one faith. One faith. This is not faith as in our experience of faith. This is Paul talking about the content of what we believe, the basics of what someone must hold to in order to be considered part of the body of Christ, the church. These are things that you probably had to agree with in like a membership meeting or, or, or rather an interview that you did with one of the pastors joining membership in the church. You're not going to uh, be admitted into membership if you don't hold to the truths of the gospel. And that's what Paul is talking about. This is the same thing that Paul speaks of in Colossians when he encourages them to be rooted and built up in him and established in the faith. Just as they were taught. He says this to the Philippians. He wants to see them progress uh, in, in, in their joy and in the faith. He says this in Galatians. He's preaching the faith. He's talking about the gospel. One gospel. Joins believers together all over the world and has done so across time and nationality and race and, 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 and cities and states and provinces, rich people, poor people, educated people, people who can't read but heard the, the same gospel truth. And believed old people, young people, kids, single people, married people across kingdoms and political regimes. And through wars and through empires, rising and falling in civilizations and trends and culture waves of influence. Gen Xers, boomers, millennials. Christians have had one faith in one gospel. We believe that God, the creator of us all. And of all sent his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Lived a perfect life and died in our place for the sins of those who would believe and is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory. It's on your wall out there, right? To the glory of God alone, through the word of scripture alone. That's by—that's the means by which we are saved. And this is not our own doing. It is the work of God. Christians across Centuries have all believed the same thing, in the same faith. Do you believe that? If you believe that, and simply that, you are in the faith. If you believe something different, you are not. And so, I would say, if you are here, and you have been around here, and you've just been coming and you've just been curious, and you've not yet considered what it might mean to trust the Lord Jesus, I would plead with you, you, your soul is in grave danger, and there is a good and kind Savior who waits to deliver you from danger, the danger of sin and death. He loves you, and he calls you to hold to him in faith. Trust and believe in Christ. Kids. So normally we do word for the kids in RCF because we don't have kids' uh, stuff. We would love to, but right now we don't. And so it's appropriate that you're here. Kids. If you believe in Christ and belong to Jesus, that is the safest place that you can be. Kids. If you've been at family worship, you've been coming on Sundays, you go down on Sunday morning, you listen to someone teach the Bible, and you're not too sure, I would plead with you. Follow Jesus. Turn from your sins. Trust in him. He's good. He's, like, way better than anyone you will ever meet. Mom, dad, grandmom, grandpop, aunt, uncle. No matter how much you love them, Jesus is better, and he loves you. Perfectly. Amen. Amen. Not only do we have one faith, we have one baptism, church. One baptism. Paul, in his explanation of what unifies the church, includes baptism. Paul is not concerned, I don't think, about the modes of baptism. I know we have some, uh, maybe we have different views on modes. uh, But I think he's concerned uh, what baptism signifies here. Do you identify with Christ? And do you do that through baptism? Have you been publicly identified with Christ? That is the issue. Uh, And water baptism, yes, is the public statement uh, of of your identification with Christ. It's a testimony, a public testimony that that you are in union with him. Believers are baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and not in the name of a church, not in the name of an apostle, Uh, There's one Lord and one baptism, one Christ, one baptism. Not only that, but beyond water baptism, regardless of sprinkling or dunking or however you do it. okay, Irrespective of denominational differences, this points to the regenerating work, I believe also, of the Holy Spirit that Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12 has baptized believers into one body. Jews, Greeks, slaves, and free. So all have been baptized by the Spirit. And that doesn't mean you fall out and speak in all sorts of uh, nonsense. That means that you are full of the Spirit. He's baptized you. He's come down and filled you. Not only do we have one baptism, we have one Father. This is the final unifier for the church. It's God the Father, the person of the Trinity, Ephesians 4.6, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. The church, the body, is animated and visible and unified by the Spirit through the work of the Son, Jesus Christ. And why does the Spirit unite the church? Why did Christ come to die? All of it flows from the one God who is over all and through all and in all. And the all here refers to believers. God is the Father to all believers, those who are in the faith. Consider Jesus' words. In John 17, you've been chosen and given to Christ by His Father, and He says, I have manifested your name, He's talking to the Father, to the people whom you gave Me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to Me, and they have kept your word. The church has been given to Christ by the Father who is over all and in all. If you are in Christ, it's because God the Father plucked you out of the world and set you apart so that you would belong to Jesus. Paul is reminding the Ephesians here and us that we have all been called by the same Heavenly Father, given to you, plucking you out, electing you, and giving you to Jesus. And the triune God is everywhere. He's in His church. Christians can go to other places, having never been there before. Walk into a gospel-believing church full of people who are in the faith and get along as if they're family because they have one Father. I, I have a friend who, it's important to say this, I don't really care much about uh, differences in ethnicity, but I do if they bring glory to Jesus. And he is he's an African-American friend, he's a black friend of mine, and he went to Scotland, which is the opposite. That's why I say that. So he goes to Scotland and he's going to look for a church. Right? And he finds a church and he texts me. He's like, I just walked into this church in Scotland and it was like they knew me the whole time. And I look so different from everybody else sound different, walk different, talk different, have different like mannerisms. And we, like, we, we hung out for like the whole day. And it was great. Amen. Yeah. And the reason that, that that can happen is because the triune God, the Father, Son, and Spirit is at work. They all had one Father. Where are you from? From Philly? Where are from Scotland. <laughs> but we have the same dad. There's nothing else in the world that can do this, church. There's nothing else in the world that can do this but the gospel. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit at work fully, completely unifying the church. Before we get to application, let me just give you some words by John Stott. This is just beautiful. He says, there can only be one Christian family, only one faith, hope, and baptism, and only one Christian body because there is only one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Is the unity of God inviolable? Then so is the unity of the church. It is no more possible to split the church than it is possible to split the Godhead. And because you can't do it, you can't split the church. So consider, you are like this is something that nothing can separate. In reality, not even you. The church belongs to God. It's made of God's people and it stood the test of history because of God's work in the gospel. And we, as his body, exist for his glory and his glory alone. This is our strong foundation, saints. One body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all, through all, and in all. This is our foundation. This is the objective foundation of our diligent efforts to preserve the unity of the Spirit. Like, this is our foundation. When we are pursuing the unity of the Spirit in humility and patience and gentleness and kindness, we are standing on that. It's not fragile. It's not breakable. and It's because it rests on the oneness of God. These are fixed realities for us. Amen? How do we practically can do this? All right, here's a couple ways. Consider what you are willing to divide over. Consider it. Consider what you've been willing to divide over, maybe over the last year. And ask yourself, does this have anything to do with being built on the foundation that is laid out for me in God's word? And if it doesn't, you should probably die to it. Consider what you're willing to divide over. Here's another one. Celebrate differences under the gospel. There are a couple ways that I and my family are obviously different than many of you, right? There are other ways that we'd have to get to know each other. to figure out how we're different and ways that we can celebrate those things. One of the ways you can testify even publicly to the unity of the gospel and the foundation of our faith is by celebrating differences in the name of Jesus. So for example, one of the things that we did at RCF was we're just kind of a smattering of all different kinds of people and we decided, hey, let's have, there's a bunch of Korean brothers and sisters at the church, let's do a Korean food night. And they cooked Korean food. And we watched Korean movies. i would never seen them before, okay? And then we sang songs to Jesus. And we prayed. And we invited people who didn't know him. Consider how to celebrate differences that point to the unity of the gospel. As you speak with others, practice instilling words of hope in them. Remind one another of the hope that you have. Especially if they've lost sight of it. So you can preserve the unity of the church. Another thing you can do is recognize when the Holy Spirit is at work in someone. So if someone comes to you and goes, I'm just so discouraged. Like I, I'm just going to drag myself to church today. I don't even want to be here. And you, and you look at them and you say, guess what? God can bless that and the Spirit is at work in you. Just remind people of the Spirit's work in their lives. The littlest inkling of, like, progression towards Jesus. I haven't read my Bible in, like, three weeks, but I read today. Praise God. That's the Holy Spirit at work in you. And keep cheering them on. Remember what we're built upon, church, a sure foundation that has outlasted all kinds of earthquakes, all kinds of tremors, all kinds of difficulties in a fallen world. Remember what we're built upon. Fix your eyes on that. Point each other towards that. Remind each other of that. Let's pray that God would make us a church that is eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit, bearing with one another, humble, gentle, loving, because we are filled with the Spirit and we have our hope in the Son. We are loved by God the Father and we're built on a sure foundation. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we can be reminded of the things that we already know and they can encourage us. That is the work of your spirit. Would you use the preaching of your word to bring about sanctification of your people for the glory of Christ in the world. ask all this in his name. Amen.